I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fellow music nerds, welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Greetings to you all, not from the Hen House studio in Nashville as usual, but this week I am coming to you from Vancouver, BC, where I am out making a record for an artist named Jim Burns. And uh, I am fitting in a little podcast time in my morning routine. So thank you for joining me. I uh, also have some shows coming up. I won't bore you with all the details, but jump on over to stevedawson.ca to uh, find out where they are. They're uh, mostly in Canada coming up playing with a band or some solo shows as well. Hope to see you out there. Today's episode is a conversation with Steve Berlin. And Steve is a Portland-based musician and producer. Most of you, or many of you, know as a member of the legendary band Los Lobos, one of my all-time favorites, a great live band, but a band that has also made some pretty staggering records in their very long career at this point. Um, Steve started his career uh, when he was growing up in Philadelphia and uh, eventually found himself out in California as a youngster where he was working in bands and uh, worked his way into the, well, sort of from like a jazz and funk rock kind of scene that he was in in Philly and and partly in California and worked his way into the then exploding roots punk rock or whatever scene that was developing around L.A. around that time in the early 80s that is just a fantastic era of music. He joined the Blasters for a few years, which is Dave and Phil Alvin's band. Uh, Dave, of course, has been on the show. And uh, that led to him eventually jumping from the Blasters ship uh, on board to another ship from just uh, across town um, in East L.A., and that band was Los Lobos. 
He went on to play sax and keyboards as well as co-produce their first few albums. Um, he co-produced those with T-Bone Burnett. This is back in the mid-80s, um, mid to late 80s, I guess. Um, he won a bunch of Grammys with those, and, and you know they hit superstardom with the success of the La Bamba soundtrack and, and their own amazing records. And uh, then after making a couple records that Steve considers to be, you know, slightly derailing the ship, I guess they they hit an incredible creative peak with the assistance of Mitchell Froom and Chad Blake on what I consider to be two of really the, the finest albums of the 90s um, in any genre, really. And those are Kiko and Colossal Head, both by Los Lobos. So Steve and I got to talk about the ups and downs of his long ride with the band, plus what led to his interest in the in studio production and uh, all kinds of interesting stuff, being on the road and, and, you know, being involved in all these great records, getting an offer he could and did refuse from Ray Manzarek and uh, his just generally interesting take on a very full and ongoing career. So thanks, as always, to everybody for tuning in. And I would like to invite you over to the website of the show at stevedawson.ca. You can connect with me there, make comments on the show. And if you feel like contributing financially, please uh, feel free to do so. That's the only way we have of keeping the show going. Also, um, please head over to iTunes to subscribe and tell all your pals to do the same. Um, That is free, of course, and it just helps us promote the show a bit and, and get the word out there the more people that subscribe via iTunes. So we would appreciate that as well. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Steve Berlin. How are things out there? You're in Portland, I take it. I am, yeah. yeah. It's uh, dark and rainy and uh, just the way we like it. Yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Right, exactly. I am interested in talking, in particular, maybe to start it off, we could talk about how you've been involved in music, both as a producer and a player. Um, I'm just wondering how you find you try at least try to juggle those things i um i do the same myself and i know it's a a bit of a struggle sometimes to keep both things in check um how do you approach that do you think of yourself more as one or the other or do they do you just sort of take the work as it comes i kind of take the work as it comes i mean the the balancing act comes when you know people want me to do stuff and i gotta you know find the time somehow somewhere where there doesn't seem to be any yeah but um you know, it seems to work out. Uh, I've been lucky enough to not, I don't feel like I've compromised anything that I've done, uh, you know, for that reason. You know, I, I, I think uh, one way or another, it, you know, we work it out. Either things take a little longer or, or you know, we just do the work, uh, you know, put the time in to make it go faster, you know, when it happens. So, you know, yeah, um, yeah. but uh you know, it seems to, I don't know, I, I guess I'm really blessed that things just seem to time out 
in a good way. I wonder if we could delve into your background a little bit. Um, I know you grew up in Philadelphia. Um, uh-huh. What was your situation in um, in your childhood like uh, as far as music in the house and stuff like that? Did you grow up around a lot of music or were you? Uh, none to speak of. Okay, <laughs> kind of like me then. <laughs> typical, uh, you know, typical second generation, you know, Americans. It was, you know, they listened to like show tunes and stuff like that. But uh-huh. I was... Uh, I'm pretty safe bet that I'm the only musician in the family. Uh-huh. So no, there was none of that growing up, you know. It was, but uh, you know, Philly was a really cool place. It still is a cool place um, in terms of that. You know, there's some really, really extraordinary players, and yeah. uh, there were places to play. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, generally there was a assumed ethos that. You know, you didn't go out unless you were ready to do anything, you know, play anything, you know, mm-hmm. be ready to play any genre, any style. You know, it was a high premium placed on, uh, on you know, not whining <laughs> and right. being good to go yeah, yeah. Uh, for anything. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, the, the, the R&B scene there was fantastic. You know, that was when I was growing up, it was the. <clears throat> the era of uh, the Philly International. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, but part of that, it's always been a very homogenous city in terms of you know racial homogeneity so you know, oh yeah that uh you know wasn't it wasn't like chicago or something no was, it wasn't okay. like chicago I, I just you know like i from like the, my first gigs were basically playing you know at r&b clubs and black clubs and you know in more or less black neighborhoods it was, it was just a very i won't say it's colorblind i mean it's mm-hmm. not certainly not like you know it's not like that but it was a, a very very homogenous place to grow up and you know i there, there was lots you know lots of great music lots of amazing players you know mm-hmm. i was really you know inspired and challenged to be you know to 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 be good you know you just couldn't get away yeah. with not not being you know you, you had to get good fast if you wanted to play with anybody who, who are some of the the players around uh like some of the the names that for you were like people that you looked up to or or always wanted to play or that you saw a lot in those days um well i actually got to see the nas i saw Oh yeah, Todd Rundgren play early on, and I could I got to see Hall o- Hall and Oates when they were like a soul band. Cool. Uh, was Was Rundgren from Philly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the Nas was. They the, the Nas didn't last very long. They they made three records, but they didn't play very long. But I, I did get to see him a couple of times. And then there was a group called Good God that that I thought were like the best band in the world. And those guys ended up becoming friends of mine, even though I was quite a bit younger than them. You know, Springsteen was huge back then. You know, I wasn't like I knew him or anything like that, but he was like a demigod in Philadelphia, you know, a good right. six or seven years before anybody knew about him anywhere else, I think. Did you see him back? Uh, like I did. Yeah, 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 I did. Back in the, I got to see him at the the main point, which is about as big as your, your living room. Uh-huh. Um, a full on E Street band? Uh, yeah, early E Street band. Beauty. So it was, a, you know, it was a, it was a neat scene. And um, the guys that I, I started playing with a band called Skyline. Uh, that was they were all older than I was and some of those guys actually played on some of the the Philly International stuff uh, all of them are still musicians interestingly enough uh, one guy is uh, play, still is now playing with Todd okay uh, one of the keyboard players went on to play with Zappa for many years um, who was that uh, his name's R.A. Martin oh okay he was in the he was in the 90s era yeah. <clears throat> Zappa um, stuff and so what was the what was the scene like as far as were, were you pretty much stuck to Philly at that point playing in well, bands or what, were you touring? what we did was no, we, we didn't tour, uh, but we did have this, um, for two years, um, our, our bass player had this deal with a friend of his, there was a, an area 
So the, everybody in Philadelphia, because Philadelphia got really hot and steamy in the summertime. Everybody in Philadelphia went <laughs> to the Jersey Shore okay. for the summertime. Yeah. So at the time, this was before Atlantic City was casino land. It was very much a family area. And um, really? then there was a, yeah. And uh, and south of Atlantic City, there were a couple of towns called Margate and Ventnor. Okay. And then there was a bit of a, there was like a marsh. And then there was a town called Ocean City, which at the time was about as big as Atlantic City, maybe a little bit smaller, but mm -hmm. not a lot smaller. And that was a dry town. So in between Atlantic City, Margate and Ventnor and Ocean City, you know, which was during the summertime was a pretty packed scene. Mm -hmm. There was this area called Summers Point. And what Summers Point was, was literally just four square blocks of bars. There was no, you know, it was just literally just, it was like the Wild West, literally. Right. Right. I don't believe, I'm not sure there might've been a police force. I don't think I ever saw one, but it was just sort of like, it was insane. And, uh -huh. um, half the bars were open until two and the other half opened at midnight and stayed up until dawn. Holy shit. That's fertile ground for, for getting your chops together. And, oh yeah. And partying your yeah. ass off. <laughs> yep. Yep. So I was, uh, I was all of 15 when I started doing that, um, 13 nights out of 14 playing, you know, four sets. So yeah, you got, you got pretty good, you know, you had to get yeah. pretty good pretty fast. Yeah. We were pretty serious and we, we got to play, you know, 80%, um, our own shit, which we, and we had good writers in the band. I mean, they really, you know, it was, it uh -huh. was, it's kind of like jazz funk, I guess you'd call it. I mean, okay. but RA, you know, Bobby, you know, called himself Bobby at the time. He was an amazing singer uh -huh. and everybody wrote. So yeah. there were, you know, like four or five different writers with stuff. So it was really fun. And we were, you know, the, the place we played, it was called Mothers, was really, it was the smallest of the of, of any of them. So it was where the cool guys, you know, where the cats hung out, more right. or less. And all the musicians would go there, either between their shows or after their shows and hang out because the, the girls were smarter and prettier, <laughs> you know, not quite as drunk. So so instead, uh, of, instead of touring, you were just able to go yeah. like, down the strip of, of places. and Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, what time? This was like, you know, early 70s. So, the, I mean, the idea that we would, you know, tour was, I mean, we would play, we, you know, we had our, 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 you know, local, you know, there was like six or seven clubs we would play, you know, uh -huh. not in the summertime, more or less, you know, we had a gig like every two weeks or so. Then, you know, we, we recorded some stuff and that's kind of where I, I kind of got the, the itch to produce. Cause you know, as good as the other musicians in the group were, none of them really were that into the process, you know, they didn't okay. want to, you know, really, you know, they just want to do it and, and, Go. go somewhere else. So, yeah, yeah. so I got to just be a bug on the wall, more or less, and observe how this how things got put together. And uh -huh. at that point in these bands, were you playing just sax, or were you playing keys yeah. as well? Or no, I, I was. I, I did not. Play. I was actually only playing soprano sax. So my thing was really, I wanted to be. I, I started out as a harmonica player, and I got tired of. I, I got tired of only being able to play one key. So I, <laughs> I, I was. I, I loved uh, Little Walter. So yeah. I. I I sort of hooked up this thing with a soprano sax to make it sound like a like an amplified harmonica. Wicked. Yeah, and it was a unique instrument. I mean, it certainly didn't sound like anything anybody else in the world was playing. I don't, you know, to this day, I don't think anyone's ever really done it. But no tenor or barry or anything at that no point? No tenor or barry. No, that came after I went to California and, uh, okay. you know, sort of, I mean, it's like another story. But, yeah, you know, that, that whole time, I, that was my, my sole instument was, you know, amplified soprano. And not, acoustic, you know, just. That's actually really yeah. cool, man. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. So what were you doing the rest of the year? Like, were you at school still and things like that? Or were you? Uh, it was probably my last year of high school. Uh -huh. uh, you know, actually my last two years of high school. And then I went to uh, Indiana University for a year. Yeah. Uh, and taking, I kind of. Were you taking? Real, music, you know, it was just music school. But I realized, like, I. Like they, it was 
really a, a school for jazz educators, period. That's okay. all, you know, it wasn't, or, you know, it wasn't, they weren't really teaching you to be a player. They, you know, there was kind of like, you know, how to go and be a clinician and stuff like that. And it was not, I, I was underwhelmed to say the least. <laughs> right. To the, you know, now I look back on it, I really wasted my time. I mean, I wish I would have right. applied myself a little bit. There was probably some cool shit to learn there. but Oh, just, yeah. yeah. I mean, like a lot of theory stuff that I just kind of completely, you know, blew off. And Right. So, I, you know, I spent a year there and then I went back to Philly and I was playing with... A, so there was a, a, a classic band in Philly called um, The Soul Survivors. They did Expressway to Your Heart. Mm-hmm. And they were the, the first and possibly only white band to ever um, be signed to Philly International. Right. I started, like, hanging out with those guys. I wasn't in the band. But we would, you know, when like when I went back to Philly, we we kind of play together all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they would do their gigs with, you know, the two brothers were the, were the Charlie and Richie Ingui were the were the actual soul survivors. But the band was, you know, some really good players, guys that had played. Uh, uh, the bass player played with Paul Butterfield for a while, and oh, okay. um, you know, there was guys that you know kind of had, knew what they were doing. You know, again, they were significantly like probably ten years older than I was, at least, you know, or eight years yeah. older. Yeah. But we, you know, we would play together quite a bit. And then, so then they all moved to California. They all moved to L.A. in 74, I want to say. Yeah, something like that, 74. Yeah. And uh, and I was just, you know, they, they all went out, you know, with the brothers to, to, you know, find fame and fortune. And, you know, I was kind of like the only one left in Philly. And then um, something happened and the, the Soul Survivors broke up, but the band stayed around and then they became sort of like a rhythm section for hire because they really were fantastic players. Not long after the Soul Survivors stopped playing together, they, they got the gig playing with Billy Preston. Oh. And then they also, then they got the gig, How? gig playing with, with Greg. Well, just, you know, they they were hustlers. I mean, they right. were really, they were active and they would, you know, they would, they wouldn't shy away from any opportunity to promote yeah. themselves, and yeah. somehow or another, they got heard okay. by both those bands. And Billy, um, Billy Preston wasn't from Philly, was he? No, no. Okay. This was all happening in L.A., so this had right. you know like very little to do with anything going on in Philly at this okay. point. So then they said you, they called me up and said, you know, you really should come out here and you know let's you know join these bands and you know be part of this thing. So I did. This was this would be like Christmas '74. Okay. Um, and by the time I got there, they managed to lose. Well, they lost the Billy Preston gig for some <laughs> stupid reason. And then I got in for one rehearsal with Greg Allman. Really? And then he fell off the wagon. Oh, shit. It was shit. one of those legendary, he was, I think it was the time he was married to Cher. Cher the shit, the nine-day wedding? <laughs> yeah, that was that was right when they were playing with him. So he kind of lost his, you know, so they lost that gig. All this happened within, literally within like 10 days of me arriving. Oh my God. But you know, it was still like, I wasn't, I wasn't going back to Philly. I mean, there's nothing happening in Philly. All my friends were in LA. So, you know, come hell or high water, I was going to stay and make it happen, you know, make it work somehow. So I found this little place and whereabouts, uh, like where were you living in, in right in Hollywood? What was going on musically in Hollywood in, in the mid seventies? Like what was the scene like there? It was, you know, for me, you know, it was, uh, you know, I was always in search of Little Feet. I mean, I thought, you know, they were like my Beatles, you know, I thought. So that was, but there was like, so this would be like the era of like Boskag, Silk Degree. So it was kind of like the stuff that we were doing anyway. Yeah. So we put a band together and uh, we did demos with uh, Robert Margoloff, which was, you know, a big, it was a learning thing for me, like to work with a real guy and, you know, Uh got to see again, you know, kind of how big time producers did their thing. What what did you learn from from those sessions? Well, Margoloff was he was a really interesting guy. He was very meticulous. Uh-huh. He was actually not very 
a comment like you know he didn't frankly want anybody hanging around just standing there watching what he did so it wasn't like he wasn't you know but he was you know he was kind enough and that, so we, we we cut demos as this band and we actually got signed to Casablanca no way which was another which was another you know amazing thing out to itself so this was also the era of literally you know cocaine was you know had re- replaced cash right. for most transactions right. and our manager was a was a coke dealer who I think was Neil Bogart's dealer or something like that. So all like everything and everybody was all, you know, was all about blow all the time. Uh-huh. And um, but you know, Casablanca was you know effectively a, a front for a, a major drug shipping operation. Basically, right. it was just like it, everybody that worked for him was either dealing or hustling or doing something related to that. And this is pre this is pre disco, I guess. By a couple um, of years, this was no. This was this would be disco. This, so this okay. was all right. So you know this. All this stuff had basically happened over the next two or three years. So now we're, this would be like 76, 77, 78 when okay. all this is happening. What, what what was the band called that you're in? So the band at that point took the, so there were these two brothers, the bass player and guitar player were brothers. And um, really stupidly, we took their names. So it was called the Beckmeyer Brothers Band. Okay. So they're, so, you know, for the hardcore, you know, deep, deep, uh, uh, divers out there there is a record on Casablanca that you know oh, with me we'll, on it we'll find it all right so this was my first experience with like really seeing a producer and operate so they had hired his name was Mike Brunt yeah Chris Brunt no sorry Chris Brunt Chris Brunt who okay. was he had produced later not the hits but some Moody Blues records that didn't you know track that didn't tank but you know he they weren't the big ones they weren't the big ones no but but he was you know this sort of goofy British guy. Oh. And I said to myself, all right, finally, I, you know, I'm in this band. They can't throw me out of the, you know, the studio. I get to see really how, how the big boys do this. And, you know, Chris was a nice enough guy. Uh-huh. Uh, but I have to say he was quite literally, he, if there was any decision to be made, he inevitably almost defying logic made the wrong call. Like he, <laughs> like every single thing that he every opinion that he had was was wrong it was just stupid a bad decision i mean we 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 had a great drummer yeah when we started who um got hired away from us by barry white oh um so we so and this was like right after we got signed so we had to make the record and he wasn't around so we got uh richie hayward which was like my dream my my idol you know Yeah. yeah And but so we started rehearsing. And how, how, how did Chris, Richie Hayward get in this? Get in the picture? He was friends with the brothers, with the Richie okay. or with uh, Stevie and Freddie, okay. the Beckmeyer brothers. But Chris didn't like his groove. This is what I mean by a guy who, who didn't, who literally could not find his ass with a fucking magnifying glass. Yeah, Richie Hayward's not really known for grooving. Like I'm, what am I, nineteen? <laughs> you know, it's not like I knew enough to know that he was an idiot. But it was pretty obvious that Some wow, these are really foolish choices this guy is making and then you know we made the record and you know his his bad luck streak continued and it was just you know incredible to me that you know he got a lot of money a lot of blow and a lot of blow probably but (laughs) you know it was just like you know and i said to myself well you know i could literally produce a session in a coma i couldn't possibly do any worse than this idiot yeah you know at the time like the stuff that we were doing it was pretty obvious that that ship was kind of sailing like the this whole you know jazz funk as good as the players were and we were, you know, I think the, the guys were really good. It was sort of like this, you know, like I was hearing about all this stuff going on in Hollywood, uh-huh. like the, you know, the mask and this punk rock scene. And I became aware of this other thing that was happening. And these guys, again, were, 
you know, I'm 1920 and they're, you know, 30 ish. Yeah. So, you know, and so I became kind of, while this was happening, I became aware of this other thing going on. And I started like, you know, just kind of following, reading, you know, listening, going to the clubs and seeing this other thing, you know, this cool this cool scene that was forming. So you're talking about like the, the blasters and beat farmers. This was a little bit before the, yeah, well, this would be like probably like 79. Yeah. So it's like 79 okay. ish. And it's really just like the, the clouds are, are just starting to form into, into mass, you know? So like there's, you know, a little thing going on here, a little thing going on there, but it was sort of like this thing that was happening. And I, you know, was slowly disassociating myself from, the, the brothers and, and their band and that that whole scene and all these, yeah. you know. And you're still living in Hollywood at this point? You know, I, I frankly was getting tired of living in Hollywood. My house was kind of like a, a, you know, kind of a flop house for a lot of guys that were, you know, musicians passing through. Good musicians, but, you know, like stuff. And it was just kind of, I, I was ready for change. So I packed up and I moved to Venice and I became friends with, um, you know, as a band uh, I just sort of like fell into a scene. So there were like a couple different clubs in, in Venice. I just sort of would go and meet and hang out and sometimes play with some of these guys. Mm-hmm. So there's a guy named Brian Beverly who was, you know, very good. You know, this is sort of, I guess you call this sort of, it wasn't really punk rock. It was more like New Wave. It was very, you know, it was kind of poppy. Okay. But he had, you know, a bunch of songs and he was a friend of ours. And, you know, so we put a band together around Brian. Mm-hmm. And somehow or another, I let him talk, you know, he let me talk him talk him into letting me produce a record or at least some demos. Okay. So I recorded some demos. Did you have engineering chops at this point? Yeah, I did not have engineering. No, I I hired engineers. I've never really been, you know, I, I I don't really like engineering to be honest with you. I mean, I I don't like, you know, it's, it's always, I'm always a little nervous about missing something, but you know, I was a good arranger and I was a good idea guy and I kind of, you know, I was able to, you know, I had, you know, the main thing, as you know, is, you know, I just had, I, I had the ability to enact a vision. You know, if I had an idea on, on how to, something should sound, I could figure out how to make it sound that way. Okay. So we cut the demos and they came out really good. I mean, really good. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we got signed. Um, they came to the attention of uh, Paul Rothschild of all people. Oh, really? The door, the Doors uh, producer. The right? Doors producer. Yeah. Who had very nice things to say about my work, which uh-huh. always, you know, made me feel really good. And he, ended up managing this band that I was in with uh, Brian and a drummer named Gary Ferguson, who went on to play with um, the New Radicals. Oh, yeah. So he, he's the drummer on that stuff. And okay. uh, and what was this new band called? Brian Beverly. Okay. <clears throat> you know, so it was just him, you know, we, and we were his band. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I got to actually produce a record, a real-life record, and that was my first one. It was... Had you know nobody bought it, but it had someone told me that I don't know how they figured this out, but that that, that record was the last eight track made. Really? <laughs> yeah, the very last one was Brian Beverly's record, and they shut the plant down. Wow, no kidding. Uh, That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, you know, what again, was the how they what was the production experience like for you going from being a player to being the guy that's making the the calls? Well, it was kind of what I thought it would be. You know, I'd been, uh-huh. I I had seen enough at that point and done enough to to kind of understand what the gig was and yeah um you know i had a sense of it you know musically where i wanted to go and it yeah you know it certainly wasn't groundbreaking in any way but i think uh you know i represented brian and the, and the songs pretty well and uh-huh. so through that band and brian and stuff like that it, you know I'm, I'm sort of like plugged into the scene more uh-huh. or less and i was being one of the very few and, and and i'll back up just for a second so when i was playing with the beckmeyer brothers 
one day they said, you know, if you don't show up with a different saxophone than the soprano, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. so I, I was I just going to ask you I, that, but that's, uh, that's... I, I got a tenor and I started, you know, I, I kind of, you know, they were, you know, it was, I mean, it, soprano is a lovely instrument, but it's the, when it's the only sound, it does get a little old. I have to say, I mean, I, I certainly understand their, their issue. Yeah, yeah, and it was good for me because then I, you know, I started you know thinking more in terms of being a multi instrumentalist. So I started to learn flute, and I mean, I kind of, I kind of got, a, you know, a larger sense of you know, what being a pro professional musician would you know should be and right. could be. Right. You know, now this whole scene is forming in in L.A. and you know this it's really exciting stuff going on. There were no real sax players, and you know, like as part of that initial wave at least. So you know, mm -hmm. like this is when the Blasters and X and the plugs and the weirdos and the, the wall of Voodie and like all these bands are, you know, suddenly existing and playing all the time. And there's nobody in the scene that could, you know, I mean, there was guys that kind of made noises on sex, but no one who really could who really play, played. you uh -huh. know, play actual notes per se. So right. sort of like the, the indie, sort of like the trumpet is to indie rock now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Okay. laughs> um, so I found myself working a lot, you know, like suddenly I'm playing like, you know, four or five nights a week, sometimes more. And, I'm playing all these different bands and, you know, kind of hanging out and meeting people. And yeah. I started playing with this guy um, named Fast Freddy, who was, he was a writer initially, uh, but he was, you know, like a real, true dedicated musicologist. I mean, he had the most amazing record collection and uh, it was sort of like R&B, like that, you know, like not the, the jazz, you know, not, not the, the, you know, kind of the funky stuff that the Beckmeyer brothers were playing, but this was like hardcore fifties, Okay. you know, H-Bomb Ferguson and yeah. Roy, you know, uh, Big Joe Turner, that kind of uh -huh. stuff. Uh, through Freddie, I got to meet you know a bunch of other people, and indirectly, I got to meet the Blasters. And you know, we just sort of, you know, this was all like a pretty small scene at that point. I mean, it really was, you know, like we, right. everybody knew everybody, and right. you know, if anybody needed a sax player, I was the guy. And uh -huh. you know, so you know, we were all very close, and there was no money in it per se. So you know, we're all. It was just this very egalitarian and and you know, really a lovely, lovely thing that that yeah. when it started. Were, were the blasters fully formed at that point? Like, was yeah, the blasters were fully formed and uh -huh. they were incredible. And, you know, everybody knew how incredible they were. And, yeah. uh, a band called the plugs, uh, were, you know, I thought the best band in town at the time, you know, uh -huh. other people would, would probably agree with that. I mean, when they started out, the plugs were, were incredible. Um, so I started playing with the plugs uh -huh. and, uh, you know, again, all this sort of coming through and from fast ready, you know, being in his right. band. Then I started playing with, were you the only Benny. sax player in the in the plugs? Uh, initially, yes. Oh, in the plugs, yes. And then I started playing with. Um, there's this other thing that sort of really sort of amplified my my thing. There was a guy named Fast, uh, named uh, Top Jimmy. Top, so Top Jimmy. Jimmy so Top Jimmy was was really an amazing character. He was an incredible singer, and you know he got his name. He was a, a taco chef at this place called Top Taco. Mm -hmm. um, but and he was but he was you know really like a guy like right out of a Tom Waits song, you know, like, you know, lived really hard, drank really hard, mm -hmm. um, played really hard, but he was a great singer. And at varying times, like everybody in LA passed through his band, including, you know, uh, David Lee Roth at one point. And really? There was a band, but you know, whenever he played, it was just like a, a party, okay. effectively speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's when I really got to kind of know and hang out with the, the blasters and like a lot of other people in uh -huh. that era, because you know, whatever, Jimmy played it was you know everybody went it was exciting it was exciting yeah it was really fun 
so they got to, you know, the, we opened for the Blasters a number of times, and we opened for X. Like, we opened for kind of everybody mm-hmm. in that era, mm-hmm. because it really was a very, it was not in any way unusual to have, you know, this blues band open up for a hardcore punk band, you know. Right, right. We play for, you know, we play with the Circle Jerks and Fear. and Yeah, the lines were blurred uh, a bit, too, right? Yeah, some of the, no, but yeah, yeah, because everybody was just, you know, like, we're all experimenting. It was just, you know, everybody's experimenting with their identities. and yeah. You know, nobody, you know, the oldest band on the scene had been together probably at that point, you know, a year, maybe, right, not even. Right. Um, was the drug thing that was prevalent in Hollywood, was it Was it like a big influence in the in that scene as well? Or? No, not even a little. No, okay. that was, that all kind of, when I left Hollywood, that all went away. I mean, there, you know, people would, you know, party, but it wasn't like the, the whole Beck My Brothers thing. That was just literally like nonstop all day, every day, <laughs> you know, just coke every place everywhere you know right. it's just you know everything it was all basically around it so yeah. no but you know this this other thing with people more frankly like my age and you yeah. know more like aligned with what i thought the world should be and music should be you know there was all we we're all kind of you know like kind coming up at the same time mm-hmm. so i really like i literally like closed completely closed the door on that whole cool that whole other thing and then uh so i was working at a music store and the phone rings one day, and it's Dave Alvin, and he says, uh, "You know, do you have a baritone? We we have a recording session tonight, and you know, we want to we're going to do this song that has a Barry part on it." Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't, but I said I did. <laughs> and, <laughs> of course, um, good, good call. Uh, I, you know, it's just I happened to be in the sax room at the music store, and there was one. <laughs> there's there was one there, and that's still the one I, I play. I believe. Really? Yeah, for real. So I went to that recording session, and that went really well. I met Lee Allen, who was one of my heroes. And, yeah. Um, what's you know, do you remember? Less, what do you remember? What song that was? Yeah, it was "I'm Shaken." So that was kind of like how me being a part of the Blaster started, and that you know, once I joined them, you know, once I kind of became a Blaster, like I, I really didn't have a lot of time to do a lot of other stuff because those guys right, actually right. did start touring. Yeah, yeah, in that era, and it was you know at that point things were changing. Like there suddenly there was a lot of people, you know, there was, there were record companies and there was yeah. money and people were leaving town and going to tour. And, right. you know, there was a lot of, you know, frankly, like some petty jealousy kind of stuff came around, which was unusual Yeah, yeah. considering where we all started, but you know, it was inevitable, you know, couldn't stay idyllic yeah. forever. Yeah. What was the dynamic between Dave and Phil like at that point? Were they, uh... it was, they were, it was terrible. I mean, <laughs> really? I mean it was, they uh, they would literally fight about anything, and it wasn't just them. Like everybody in the band, with the exception of John Baz, who was not a, a fighter, but Gene Taylor and Bill Bateman and Dave and Phil, like any and all of any any two of them would get in a fight over the most <laughs> the stupidest thing. And when really? I say fight, like it wasn't like you know fuck you fuck you. No, it was a fist fight. You know they would <laughs> they liked to fight. They were yeah. they they actually enjoyed physical you know battling right? oh, and you know God. or at least threats of it and you know they would just fight about the dumbest shit in the world <laughs> but uh you know i was happy to have a gig and you know sure. i was happy to tour and you know i was making you know they actually had a weekly retainer or some sort nice. like so it wasn't yeah so things changed again and can you tell me about that session for i'm shaken like was that uh were those records at that time done like really organically and live and yeah it was okay. done live the guys liked the sound of the tenor and the berry together and then yeah. you know so so then we that started like a whole, you know, was it like two years or so of, of touring with them, Hardcore. and it, they toured a lot. They played a yeah. lot, um, yeah. but you know, the the saxes only played on a, you know, they, they would, you know, like it was a twenty song set. The saxes would only play on maybe six songs of the twenty songs. Oh, so as you know, as a gig, 
I mean, it was, I was, you know, enthralled. It was great. You got to travel and, you know, meet girls and shit, but it was, uh, but you know, as a, you know, it wasn't very fulfilling musically. Were you just off stage the rest of the night? Yeah. Just hanging out, you know, hanging out with Lee, listening, you know, what, you know, you drinking with them or listening to them tell stories and then we'd come up and do our songs and wow that was that yeah wow. so it was uh as cool as it was and uh, you know certainly and you know we were the talk of the town you know like everywhere we went it was like a big deal to go see the blasters but at the same time as a player and you know certainly as someone who wanted to produce records it wasn't like you know this is the the it's gig a, of my life you not know? a great use of your time yeah this would be so about 78 or so i met this um a, a Dutch director named Rene Dalder, D-A-A-L-D-E-R. And Rene was kind of an amazingly visionary guy. He, you know, like he really, like he could see things that were going to happen way, 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 way before anybody else. And he saw, so this is before MTV. And he said, the world is going to completely change around music videos. The whole thing is going to be about music videos and he he had made some some money and had achieved a reputation making some movies in Holland and came to L.A. And he was the brains behind a group called the Screamers, who were really you know the the scene the L.A. scene would not have happened without the Screamers. They don't really get a lot of credit because what little recordings there are are not really very good. But they influenced everybody, and they were you know because they were really really ahead of their time, like really you know like, like super intense visuals and it was sort of like a circus when they played um so they you know like the visual aesthetic that they that they had was super you know you know it's really inspiring and that was all renee so renee found this building and uh turned it into a video uh studio with a recording studio and in exchange for working on his screamer stuff um i got to have the recording studio i got to take it like from you know like one in the morning till six in the morning and there were a couple of us that would do that. Like he hired Flea, among other people. So really? Flea was one of the guys that had this deal, and a guy named Steve Huffstetter who went on to play with the Plugs after I left. Was Flea Flea then, or was he? Flea was Michael. Okay. He wasn't Flea quite yet. Yeah, he was Michael Balzer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he wasn't quite the personality. But you know, yeah. and but we didn't really work together. It wasn't like he just had this. Renee was kind of like a Svengali character, so it wasn't like he would just have people do stuff different things for different projects. Uh-huh. I got to produce this Top Jimmy record in exchange for my toil on, on Renee's records, and that okay. too came out came out really, really good. What's the name of that record? Uh, Pigus Drunkus Maximus. <laughs> so, I, so I did the record, and um, it got somehow or another, it got to Ray Manzarek of The Doors. Really? Uh, Ray says he wants to meet me. So I said, okay, man, Raymond's over the doors. And so at this point, he had produced a couple of uh, the X records. So he was, you know, he was, uh, you know, the guy, basically. You know, he was like the guy that everybody wanted to, you know, work with. And, you know, because we all kind of worshiped X. And yeah. So he calls me into his office and I walk in. I'll never forget this. So he's he's eating like chicken gizzards out of a, <laughs> out of a paper bag. <laughs> So this bag is like stain, like the room stunk Gross. of like you know like chicken, you know, uh, garbage, uh-huh. and he's he's got this greasy bag sitting on his desk, and he you know so it's like this you know whole Hollywood moment. So he goes, you know, I, yeah, yeah, I heard your this Top Jimmy record, and you know, I really uh, I really like uh, I really like what you did there. He goes, well, you know, I, I think I should produce it with you. I'm like, well, um, Ray, that's that's very nice of you to ask, but. Uh, 
record's done. You know, we, we finished it. It's, it's, you know, it's mixed. It's mastered. He goes, no, you don't understand. I want to produce it with you. And he's just like staring me down. It like took me forever to realize that he just wanted to stick his fucking name on it. What? Like it was going to be, it was going to be, you know, that, you know, he, he thought, you know, it sounded good enough that, you know, he could have done it. Frankly, it sounded better than any fucking record he did. Uh-huh. Um, wow, what a cheesy, shitty move. Yeah. So I, you know, after I kind of realized that's what he was actually saying to me, I, I, I kind of <laughs> had to say, uh, you know, Ray, I, you know, I sweated my fucking balls off to make this record. And, you know, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. And what very unfortunately, because you know Jimmy and a couple of other guys in, in the band were so enthralled with the idea of you know having Ray's name on the record, even though he literally would have absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah, it went into you know it sort of we went into this sort of like stalemate for a while. So really? the record actually as finished though it was it, it had been, it didn't come out for the better part of a year because I wasn't I wasn't going to back down. I mean I you know I really yeah I, right. I worked hard to make that record happen. I was not going to sign off give it to this shit. fucking you know clown who. Frankly, I wasn't that, you know, I didn't think his record sounded very good at all. Uh-huh. You know, I, I thought this, I mean, I loved X and I, I thought the record sounded kind of shitty, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, right around that time, um, so the Blasters are, are headlining the whiskey and Dave says, oh, we got this band called Los Lobos going to open up for us. Mm-hmm. Now, I had seen a band called Los Lobos open for Public Enemy when Public Enemy did their, or uh, Public Image, sorry. Public in- Image had done their one and only LA show and it was, this band playing, you know, Mexican folk music. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like, wow, that's going to be really weird. Mexican folk band opening for us, but you know, hey, you know, it was what 1980, 81, or so. It was like whatever, you know, yeah, this could be sure. cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that night, Lobos played, and they were no longer a folk band. They were playing <laughs> this amazing amalgamation of blues and country yeah. and Cajun and yeah. all the stuff we we've always done. And right. I and everybody else in the room and everybody else in town was just kind of blown away because, you know, here was this band from literally 15 miles away, but they might as, been, might as well have been from Mars, 15, 15 solar systems away. Yeah. Because uh, it was literally like nothing, like nobody ever crossed the L.A. River. There was a couple bands from East L.A. That, that came across, but it wasn't like no one really knew anything about what was happening on East L.A. Okay. And here's this band with, you know, songs and and two great singers and, and, you know, like an actual vision and a plan. And Were they playing tons over in East L.A. at that time? Yeah. Well, they okay. weren't. Well, they had been playing tons, playing the folkloric stuff, but they hadn't really been playing um, the, the stuff that, you know, we now know them to be yeah. for very long. This was, they had gotten a gig at a restaurant and they had played this restaurant for like two years and they gradually started getting louder and more <laughs> bluesier and stuff like that. And then they got fired from the restaurant. <laughs> for being too loud and bluesy. Yeah. And they said, well, you know, fuck it. Let's just see what happens if we, you know, let's let's try and do it this way. Right. And that's kind of around, that's right, roughly the era when, when I meet them. And had they, had they dropped the acoustic trad stuff completely or were they mixing Pretty it much, in? Yeah. They, okay. they, they had dropped it. Uh, well, no, they had, they didn't, they never dropped it, but um, that they, you know, this is what they wanted to do. So they were going to, they were going to make a go of it in this, you know, wild cauldron that is, the LA music scene playing, um, you know, this weird hybrid of rock, blues, folk, country, Cajun, everything else stuff. Um, they still would do occasional um, uh, folkloric gigs, but it was their main focus was was this thing. And they were, you know, after that one show or after that one weekend, they were everybody's darling. I mean, everybody wanted to hang out with them. Everybody wanted to play with them. I mean, they were just like they were so. It was pretty obvious to all of us that they were evolved in a way that none of the other bands in the scene are because they had played together for 
at that point, like seven or eight years. And it was, right. and they were, you know, really interesting guys and, you know, they, they knew their shit. And, and they said, you know, these, these, some of these songs we're playing have sax parts. You want to, you want to learn them? <laughs> like, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, we, I guess, you know, in a nice way, I sort of ingratiated myself to them and yeah. started playing with them all the time. And, you know, I made mention that I'd love to produce them if the opportunity arose. So, there was a, a movie that this guy named Art Fine had the job of uh, doing the soundtrack on, and he managed to get all of the bands, like the Blasters, X, Us, all, everybody got a song in the, in the movie. And I produced that song. It's called We're Gonna Rock. Because everybody in town was so madly in love with Lobos. Uh, at that point, I'm still playing in the Blasters, by the way. Okay. But, you know, everybody... So this is like the era when Slash Records is just, you know, like really hitting their stride. So they okay. have X, they have... Green on red, they have us. They yeah. have, uh, uh, well, they didn't have us at that moment. Um, but you know, that's Lobos where is still unsigned. Yeah, we're unsigned, but everybody is saying to Bob Biggs, you know, you have to sign Los Lobos. You have to sign Los Lobos. It's mm -hmm. just not negotiable. You have to sign Los Lobos. So I think because Bob was afraid that no one would ever invite him to their parties anymore, he's, he signed, <laughs> he signed Lobos. Yeah. And based off the demo that you did? Uh, it was actually based off the scene. I mean, it wasn't okay. like a it wasn't a demo. It was like that that song came out on the soundtrack of this. Uh, oh right, okay, yeah, horror movie. But there was no the wasn't a demo. You know that got them signed. But um, they you know very graciously asked that I produce it, and and Bob said you know well why don't we get someone who's a little more experienced? So that's how T Bone entered the picture. Okay. So he and I produced the first record. Had had you together. met T Bone at that point or? No, I just met him through uh, through Bob Biggs, and okay, and, he was a very and charm, he, charming guy. Had he done much production at that no, point? No, he had not done much. No, his he had done like some of the stuff with Dylan, and he was you yeah. know whatever that thing was. So it wasn't like he was you know like the the cult of personality had yet to really form yeah. at that point. Did was that weird that you were that you were thrust into a situation with somebody that you didn't know like that? No, because honestly, I felt pretty good about like what I had, you know, I kind of, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, I, you know, I, I, it was kind of cool that someone, you know, with a little bit more experience than I did and, mm -hmm. you know, a little wiser than I was certainly. I mean, I had no qualms about it and I was yeah. just happy that I was part of the team and, yeah. um, you know, that it was that the guys were, you know, willing to stand up for me. And so, yeah. um, so what was the, no, I didn't, I, I, I didn't really have any issue with it. I, it was, you know, and, and again, it was, you know, the scene was so innocent and, you know, it wasn't right. like, you know, what I mean, like we're, it's you know, this is before Warner Brothers entered the picture, so it was just like it was all just, you know, we're all just having fun, basically. Right. You know, like yeah, no yeah. one it wasn't really like, you know, I wasn't worried about money or you yeah. know, fame or anything like that. We're just like, okay, let's yeah. go make a record. And what was the what was the co-production dynamic like? Like, how did the two of you hash well, that out? The first, it was actually an EP. The first EP, he was there a lot, and he was um, a really good. This is at a time to dance, right? A time to dance. Yeah, yeah. he was a good like he could sort of solve. Uh, like song issues, like I, all of us, I mean, I can't say claim, but you know, like I had, I had at that point been playing with them enough and hung out with them enough that I had kind of arranged a few of these things. Like I arranged, don't worry, baby. I kind of came up with that riff yeah, and the structure and, you know, got to let you know, it started out as like a slow song that I, I sped up. So I, you know, I kind of had my thumbprint on a lot of stuff. You know, when we started the record, I was still in the blasters. And then by the time the record came out, I, would, I was pretty much a full fledged. Lobo. Lobo. So, uh -huh. and it, you know, it did, you know, really well, like way better than anybody, certainly right. way better than Bob, Bob Biggs thought it was going to be. And then, you know, then 
Was that the um, biggest thing Slash had done, really, at that point? I think the Blasters records were probably bigger, but okay. you know, we had certainly gotten a lot of attention for for an EP. You know, it was right. a lot of like we won a Grammy. I mean, it was like you know, like nobody thought a Slash record was ever going to win a Grammy for anything. Believe right. That right. was like why an EP? Honestly, because Bob didn't think that you know we were going to last, and he didn't want to put the money into it. Really? Like he really, like he really didn't believe in in Los Lobos at all. He did not think that we had anything that he really thought. And he, he you know, he as much as said that. Like he thought that Green on Red, which who he signed at the same time, that's the one that was going to make him a zillion dollars. He thought that Green on Red was like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He really okay. thought that that you know that was going to be the ticket to the big time, and that you know he didn't really, you know, he only gave us enough to let us do what he thought the bare minimum would right. be, okay. including up to you know also promotion and some other stuff. I mean, he really didn't give us a lot yet. You know, we kept failing upwards somehow. And, yeah. you know, to his, I don't think chagrin because it was all, you know, good for him. But yeah, certainly there wasn't, I, that's my rationale and why it was an EP and not a record. Okay. But it was obvious that, you know, it was, you know, we had something and it was happening and then he kind of had to step up and then Warner Brothers had the picture. And then, you know, Bob effectively faded a little bit out of this, the, the picture. I mean, we, at that point we were dealing with, you know, Warner Brothers people are not really dealing with Bob and uh-huh. and uh, his partner Mark, who is you know like a thief, like you know like a I won't say he's a world class criminal, but he was like <laughs> basically in charge of cooking the books. Okay, the Grammy win must have uh, catapulted you guys into a bigger deal and a lot more recognition. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So that was it was a big deal. Um, and you know, we at that point, you know, we were touring like nonstop, and we were getting a lot of good things happening. You know, it was like a, a lot of. A lot of cool shit was was going on while this was happening, and um, I also got to produce the uh, the first Faith No More record not long after. Oh, you know, right, yeah, that as well, which was also a blast. Did you start getting a lot of calls like that because of the because of the recognition that that EP got? I got. I won't say. I mean, like the phone didn't really ring off the hook per uh-huh. se. You know, uh-huh. it wasn't like I, I was turning stuff down left and right. I mean, I. T-Bone had more or less gotten all of the credit for the EP. Right, um, right. So his, he's that, that cult of personality has actually started. Uh-huh. And Which is obviously he, something that wasn't totally accurate. <laughs> no, no, okay. certainly not. But, you know, I mean, the guy, you know, he, he's good at what he does. And he, mm-hmm. he certainly is a, a master communicator and a mm-hmm. master storyteller and a mm-hmm. master charming guy. And, yeah. you know, it wasn't, wasn't mysterious to me that, you know, he was that that was happening. And, and I was, I wasn't jealous. I mean, we were working on it together. I was happy yeah. for him. I was playing, actually, I was also playing in his band. I played on, on a couple of his records and I was, Oh, cool. Actually did, did some shows with him. I mean, we were, you know, we were still pals yeah. for quite a while, but then we started doing, well, the will survive and kind of, that's where, you know, we started to see the, the world, the team on that we, everybody sort of knows now, like, you know, he started, st- you know, he kind of stopped showing up. Uh-huh. Um, so I was doing, I would say, you know, probably on balance, like certainly more than half of the work. I won't say I did 100% of it, but, you know. He, so he would sort of show up and set the scene and then you would take over? Not or? even, he would not even show up. No, it was like oh, I was okay. I was doing it all. <laughs> okay. He would, show up, he would show up on occasion and like, you know, have a thing or two to say. And when he was around, it was, it was cool. You know, they weren't bad ideas, but then he would just, you know, like literally just go away. And we were, you know. Wow, we would just carry on, and I, you know, how because he, we how were. How did he get away with that? Ask the hundreds and hundreds of people that he's worked with since. He hasn't changed his act any, as far as I know. It's, <laughs> it's exactly what he's always done. Wow. Okay. I'm. 
I don't know. I mean, we, you know, we, we've, I've since spoken to him. I mean, like we had, there was a lot of bad blood there for a long time, but you know what? He's really good at what he does. I have, you know, I mean, I don't like how he does yeah. it, but uh-huh. the records are successful and they sound good. And yeah, yeah. you know, he's, he's done some stuff that really has changed the culture and I, you got to yeah. give him credit for that. Oh yeah, but, totally. And I don't, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know how you do it by, when you're not there, but he somehow, he, that's how he does it. So okay. I don't know. Okay. You know. It's not the way I would do it, but I can yeah. only say that, you know, it's hard to argue with the track. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. But this was, so this 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 is kind of what's happening. So we... But the, you know the record gets made, and it you know and it does. There's so you know there's more Grammy nominations. It's record mm-hmm. of the year. We're Rolling Stone band of the year. You're on Warner really, at this time, direct? Yeah, we're on Warner. I mean, yeah. it says slash Warner, but it's you know we're like just one of the the bros there at Warner's, and you know that, that was a good place to be then, you know, like mid '80s, yeah, and stuff like that. So and then you know like I'm producing some other cool stuff. Like I think you know the. I guess the hip record came like in the early nineties, but yeah. How did that come about? Uh, what was your Canadian connection there? Um, I had done the crash test dummies first record. Okay. That, that was a huge record. Yeah. The first record, the second record was bigger than the first record, but yeah, it was, it was huge in Canada. Yeah. And we were, we were part of that, that first, um, uh, roadside attraction tour. So we were oh, hanging right. out together. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, we were, they, you know, they. I guess they liked what I'd done, and so we yeah. just started talking about stuff. And what struck you about them as a band? That, that. Well, uh, what's what? Here's what's so fascinating. Like, I had no idea. Like, I really didn't know who they were. I mean, I really didn't. And I'll never hardly anyone does that's not Canadian. I know, but I was producing Stephen Fearing. Okay, I don't know if you know. Who, yeah, and I, I know him well. Yeah. So I, I was in the studio. So I'm in the Armory studio with Fearing, and nice. I just made mention that. Hey, this you know this band, tragically hip, is talking to me about producing the record, and literally everybody in the studio just stopped. It was like one of those mannequin moments. Like they're all just stopped and they're they're looking at me like, "What did you just say?" I said, "Yeah, this, you know this band, tragically hip," and they're just like like everybody in the room, like it's like the assistant engineer, everybody. They're just their mouths are literally on the floor. Like, yeah. are you kidding? The tragically hip, and like you know that's kind of when I I kind of got the notion that oh, this is not just another another band but you know as an american you know like we had no idea and you know i'm it's not like i listen to canadian radio or watch canadian television like right. I, I had no clue you know how important they were and Did, had how you signed amazing on they were to their project without realizing how big of a band they were i was talking to them without realizing how big of a band they were and then okay. i kind of got the notion when i went to the record store and i saw that you know the all the hip stuff everywhere and right as i talked to more canadian friends like become kind of became aware of what how big a deal it was but i have to say 
that my approach to it all, like I could have gotten really kind of snowed under with all that stuff, but mm -hmm. I approached it like they were, because in many ways they were very much like my band. They were, you know, like same kind of right. vibe. Like there was yeah. four guys that played together since they together were teenagers. And, and, you know, like exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I decided that that's how I was going to approach it, that I wasn't going to, it was it's not, you know, they're not the Rolling Stones. I'm going to treat them just like, you know, I, I dealt with the guys in my band. Like I kind of became a band member effectively, even though I didn't really play them very much, but mm -hmm. I wanted to be deep in their culture and we were going to do this thing together. It wasn't like I had, I, I wasn't, you know, not Phil Spector. I wasn't, you know, I, I don't claim to have all the ideas or, you know, I'm certainly not writing the songs. So I'm, I'm just, you know, let's, let's work on this cool thing together and let's, let's see if we can have some fun and some laughs and, mm -hmm make this thing that sounds, you know, like a live living thing. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, that was, I think it was the only way to kind of get them to, to, in a weird way, like the thing about them was they had, you know, what was it, like six records or five records before me? And it was sort of like they had developed this this thing, like they were so patterned, like they, right. you know, they, they, this is where they set up their guitars. This is how the guitar sounds. This is how the amps sound. It's like, this is where Johnny goes. This is where, you know, it's like they all had their corners and the guitarist, you know, I just remember that, man, they, they really sound a lot alike. Right. I mean, they're great. You know, Paul is a great guitar player and Rob uh -huh. is a great guitar player. But, you know, they're both playing Mesa Boogies and they're both playing Les Paul. So it was just like, you know. Sort of a wall. Yeah, it was a wall. And the and the parts weren't, you know, they they were effective, but they weren't imaginative. And they weren't like, right. you know, I, I just said to him in as many words, you know, we could do a lot more texturally if these guitar sounds sound a little different than if they sound yeah. like, you know, like one's just a treblier version of the, of the other right. one. right. So that's kind of the first thing I started messing around with them. And then I got up to like, I just made them set up in a different way. I made, you know, like I made them kind of like rethink a lot of stuff. And, yeah. and uh, you know, they were very prolific songwriter wise, but the, the ideas as they came to me were not like really fully formed. So I remember like, for instance, like Poets was, those were like three different songs that okay. became Poets, like the, like the, the first riff. Yeah. And then the don't tell me what the poets were doing. Like the the chorus was another part, mm -hmm. and the I think the solo was the intro of a of a third song. I just remember like kind of, and but it wasn't like I just said let the, you know what what if we do this because I, I think the way that they are also like they had just come like they would sit around and they would just come up with these great riffs. Yeah, they would and then just they would sort write, of jam right, and then Gord yeah, would go and, off, and, and then Gord would off go. Yeah, so and and I I made them think about stuff in a little bit more like I you know I really like bridges, so let's. You know, can we think about this thing? Like, you know, I want, I really want to have a bridge on this stuff, and I really want. Like, I think the intro should have like a different flavor than the the rest of the song. And I think that you know, like, a lot of their tunes prior to my involvement were like the it would be just a riff, and the chorus would just be a louder version of that same riff. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. New Orleans is sinking, and you know, a couple other ones. And I just didn't. I, to me, it was not. I wanted more. I yeah. wanted, you know, I wanted, I wanted choruses that were different and bridges that were different. And how did they respond to that? The first record, they were actually more amenable to the ideas, to my ideas, than they were on the second record. Okay. Um, first record, you know, and it was just, you know, we 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 were doing it at the uh, the bathhouse, which was kind of like their clubhouse, and I was just yeah, living I've, I've there worked, for. I've worked there. I, I like so I lived place. there for I don't know, like two or three months with them, and wow. You know, I would go out and, you know, put on hockey skates, even though I couldn't skate for shit. I could barely <laughs> stay upright, but, you know, they, they thought it was amusing that I would try. Uh -huh. The only thing that, that was weird about that record was, so I uh, I had been doing, I had done a lot of work with a, a mixer named Jim Rontanelli, who did the the uh, uh, 
uh, girlfriend, Matthew Sweet. Oh, you know, yeah. He had done some really cool records, and I really liked his work. And so he had mixed a few things for me that I thought were really cool. So I brought him in to do it. And that's kind of, that was where, you know, we kind of got a little sideways because uh, Jim was really, you know, Jim had a real, you know, he had a sound. Okay. And the, some of the stuff they liked, some of the stuff they didn't like. Yeah. Um, I will say, in, in fairness, like I, I had gotten a little bit too experimental with some of the like uh, instrumentation choices. I remember at one point there was actually a ver- believe it or not, there's a version of fireworks with uh, four trombones. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> playing that, playing the down down It's like not quite what Canadian rock radio. Expected. No, <laughs> and I, you know, I mean, I love. I, I didn't keep a copy, and but you know, I think <laughs> it's they, probably really they, cool. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's really cool. But they, you know, they were kind of like looking at me funny a little. Like you know, we were still getting along great, but it wasn't. You know, like some of my choices at that point were a little bit too outside for their for their sensibilities and Jim, you know, Jim didn't have any other gear, but full speed ahead. So like some of the mixes were a little outside for them. So they went back to Don Smith who had mixed some of the other stuff Uh without me around. Like basically, you know, Hey, we want to see what Don's going to do with this. And Mm -hmm. I didn't care for, I mean, I thought Don had done some great work, but I didn't at all like what he had done with the hip stuff. It really, you know, I thought it was kind of strange and, Uh Um, he had taken some of the really cool stuff and taken it out. So we got a little sideways. So we ended up like having to, like we had this like summit meeting where we had to negotiate. All right, well, you know, I get two gym mixes if Don gets a mix. And then oh, we really? ended up with a, with a couple of rough mixes that Mark uh, Vraken did. Okay. who was, you know, their longtime house guy yeah. who, had, who, had, who had recorded it. Sounds messy. But, you know, it was a little messy and, it, you know, but I, I, you know, I, I love those guys. I will always, always love those guys. It was never, you know, even when we were like arguing, it wasn't, you know, I never got to the level of a blasters level, you know, <laughs> argument, you know, it was just sort yeah. of like they were, you know, Canadians, they were just very kind and gentle and uh-huh. they were uncomfortable with some of the choices, which I get, you know, I mean, yeah. I, you know, again, I'm, I'm in a band just like them. I know, you know, sometimes some people pushed our buttons the wrong way, you know, it was, uh-huh. I understood it. That was the one, I remember a couple times during the making of that one feeling like, well, you know what, I should just walk away, I should just quit, because really? they're, listen- they're not listening to me, and yeah. I don't think they like me anymore. And that's, a, that's a rough feeling when you feel like you, you should walk away from something. It was tough. You know, I remember feeling very defeated at one point, and you know, I packed my bags, and I was, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know if I told them I was even going to leave, but I was just going to just split, you know, because yeah. it, was, it was just kind of getting weird. Yeah. But uh, it, I didn't. You know, I, th- I woke up the next day, and I said, you know what, that's not... I don't want to, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick it out. And, you yeah, know, maybe if they want, if they want me gone. They'll just fire me and you know, right. I'll just go away. It's, it's okay. I've been fired before at that point. So <laughs> they, I guess, and I, you know, with my assent decided they were going to go back to, um, Stephen Drake to mix oh, this yeah. one. Okay. Now, Stephen is a wonderful human being and a great fellow and a really talented musician, but as a mixer, it was Oh, he, he just about killed me because really? the way, you know, because he, he doesn't really have, he has no technical, uh, I won't say he doesn't have, he has great technical skill, but he does it. It's all just feel for right. him. Right. And, and he does it in this really bizarre way where things just sound like not just bad, but like horrendously bad <laughs> for hours. They're just like, not even in the, like, it's just like he works on these 
these like combination of sounds and you just think were you there for that process uh yeah i mean i i sort of had to be there I mean, and this is all at the bathhouse so oh, okay. you know it's the dead of, den of winter in, yeah in nowhere Kingston, to go man. ontario yeah you're snowed yeah, in it was there's a lot like the shining you know i just felt like i was <laughs> you know I'd, I'd already like you know kind of threatened to quit once but i didn't and i, I stuck it in and then Stephen drake shows up and you know the other thing too is like you know i'm not a pot smoker at all really mm-hmm. and Stephen literally would not he at no inhalation of any breath did not have some cannabis <laughs> attached to it. Like he literally was, he was lit up from every, there was a joint in his mouth or nearby every breath he took all day, every day. And, and I'm not kidding. It was just like unbelievable amount of weed nonstop. Again, he's a very nice guy and very talented guy. Yeah. But, you know, just being around somebody that, you know, like literally smoking pot every day, all day, and then the other weird thing was he would stay awake for two days w- w- doing his thing. And then he would sleep for, for like a day and a half. Wow. And again, you know, dead of winter, Kingston, Ontario. Crazy, man. What no a crazy car, scene. Six feet of snow. Yeah. You know, I don't think, did they have a TV? I don't even remember. It's a Stevens process. So it just, it would literally just sound like horrendous, horrendous, horrendous for hours and hours and hours and possible, possible, possible. And the only time, like he would, he would, he brought his telescope. He had like a, like a full-on, like astronomy, you know, like a, a giant case, and he was huge telescope. So, like he would go take a break and go outside and look at the stars in his telescope, smoking a joint, come back in, go back to work, smoke a joint. Uh, and then, but you know, the weird thing is, like, every, like one, but then all of a sudden, the mix would come into focus, and it would just sound amazing. But wow. it would be like landing. Seriously, like landing a a super tanker, like you know, like one of those giant planes, because it would literally be like all of a sudden all these horrible, horrible sounds and these weird combination sounds. Like he's not even listening to the whole track; he's just listening to like the bass and the floor tom, or the bass and the room mic. Weird. And and the, yeah, like not like just and for hours and hours and hours, just like this weird combination of 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 sounds that didn't you know didn't even sound like the song, and then all of a sudden you know the mix would come into focus and it would sound fucking awesome. It'd be like, Oh my God, there, Weird. there it is. You know, it's like, you know, like literally seeing this thing come out of the mist. That was a tough one. It was a really, that was a, one of the hardest, wow. toughest uh, experiences of my yeah, producing like career. But you know, the record came out and did well. And you know, I, I, I love music at work. That, that was another one where, you know, I, there is another version of that with uh, a lot of crazy sounds on it that they didn't go for in the end, right, which, I bet. That that one I wish I kind of wish they would have listened to me on some of those things. So I think it was, yeah. What I think I put a pedal steel on that one, uh-huh. like a really like a loud pedal steel that nice. they didn't they didn't go for it. No, um, too bad, man. The whole thing this past summer I was quite literally you know crying all summer. I got to see him in Calgary, which was oh you did I eh? you went to that amazing and intense. And then the last show we we had a gig in uh, where the fuck was it Kentucky or someplace like that. Mm-hmm. And like right out of nowhere, like literally, like we're just about to go on stage. This giant thundercloud shows up and dumps this giant storm, and the, the show gets canceled. So I actually got to listen to the whole. Oh, show. really? Like it was almost. It was very, very weird. Like out of a clear blue sky, a, weird. A, a this weird thunderstorm shows up. Holy shit! And shuts down this whole festival. Actually, it wasn't just us. It was a festival going on, and yeah. so I, I got to you know sit and listen and cry like everybody else. So when you when you would go and work for these extended periods of time, were you just scheduling that around Los Lobos's touring schedule, or were you missing? Yeah, gigs or? yeah. I, no, I didn't. Uh, the only I've only missed a couple gigs. You know what's weird? I missed gigs for was uh, was um, 
Great big C, because <laughs> really? it was too hard to get, because I couldn't get from St. John's to anywhere in less than like three days. <laughs> yeah, no shit, man. Um, yeah, so I, that was the only one where I, you know, I missed like, I don't know, not a lot. I mean, like three or four gigs during the course of, you know, what, two records with them. But uh, okay. Can you tell me a bit about the set, the the Mitchell Froome sessions for Kiko and Colossal Head? Um Sure. Uh, how those came about and what it was like working with him and maybe just how you develop those because they're such sonically, they're kind of big departures and they're so amazing sounding. I'm just curious about the process. All right. After We'll Survive, um, we did uh, By the Light of the Moon. Yeah. And that's when, just to back up a little bit, that's when T-Bone and I basically, did, you know, we couldn't really work together anymore. Okay. You know, it just didn't, wasn't happening, you know, and I was the odd man out. Yeah. So, um, while, you know, we were working on, we had started working on by the light of the moon and then this, this, this weird little movie project comes up. And, <laughs> um, so my job became working on that while the guys were working on, um, by the light of the moon. And, you know, we didn't, nobody, nobody thought that La Bamba was going to be anything. Right. I mean, it was, it was a guy with a first time director, right. a cast of people that were, had been doing like literal, like community theater in, in the. Um, in the swamps of, of uh, Central California, yeah, you know nobody knew any of these people. That you know the story really wasn't that compelling. A seventeen-year-old kid, you know, writes eighteen songs and dies in a plane crash. You know, it wasn't. There's nothing about it that made you think, oh, this is going to be a giant hit movie. So, effectively speaking, I was you know banished to working on this piece of shit movie. Really? Um, is that well, how it felt? Really? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I have to say, to be honest, yeah, yeah, it was kind of like you know nobody really thought much uh, there was going to be anything and. Mm-hmm. You know, we were working on the big follow-up to Will Will Survive, so it was like, you know, kind of. So that happened the way it happened. You know, Bomb was a big hit. By Light of the Moon gets basically, you know, swamped over in the the slipstream of of this movie. Did they come out? The did the film and and that album come out around the same time? Yeah, yeah, right about the same time. Yeah, so the the album effectively got you know ignored. And I have to say, I mean, the, the personal stuff aside. Um, it was not my favorite record. It, it, you know, it was, it was just like it took us forever to make. Uh-huh. I thought, you know, I, I don't. Know, it, it was just not not a fun time. Okay. But uh, you know, La Bamba happens, and you know, we're big international stars, and we tour all over the world, and you know, made some money, which is nice. Yeah. And then we and then we made. Uh, was it a huge difference, like gig wise, from like yes. where you, you went to playing like stadiums yes. at that point? We didn't play stadiums, but it was certainly, you know, we had been playing these, you know, funny little clubs and going, touring in vans and cars and, you know, like really, really, you know, kind of small scale. And then, you know, we have a bus and sometimes we had two buses with, uh, you know, we're carrying lights and, yeah. you know, we had like five crew guys. We only ever had like one crew guy up to that point. And you got to play La Bamba every night. Yeah, we got to play La Bamba. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, it, certainly it was a different, it was a different thing. Um, and, you know, everybody knew who we were. So then we did, uh, I, you know, that was, it was an amazing time. It really was, you know, everybody sort of got to see what life was like as a big time sure. band. Yeah. Then we did uh, um, the La Pistola record, which was, you know, basically our response to, how do you follow up this, you know, giant movie thing? And it was just, we, you know, there was never going to be a La Bamba 2. It was not an option. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, you know, I think even, even though I wasn't a big fan of the record, we were kind of sad about the way By the Light of the Moon got treated. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've, you know, I think Louis, or Louis Perez, or one of our guitar players, you know, he said, like, if we were ever going to do something that reflected, you know, where the band started, the whole folkloric thing, now is the time because no one's ever going to, no one's ever going to care as much as they care now about right, right. what we do musically. 
I thought that was a brilliant analyzation of this of the thing, and that so we did that, and it came out, and it was you know won a Grammy on that, and it was pretty cool. All right, so then came time to make the what was going to be the neighborhood. Yeah, so the neighborhood. All right, so this, here's the story of the neighborhood. So we, you know, we we came to realize that T Bone, you know, the the whole disappearing act had gotten really old. So he's out of the picture, and I wasn't, you know, at that point, you know, like I had. I wasn't going to produce the records anymore. It just wasn't, you know, it, that, you know, once, once you're in a band for that you're many just years, too close you know, to it. you're too close to it. You know, they uh-huh. see me at my worst, you know, it's just like, you don't really, you know, you kind of lose your, your magic act, you know, okay. when, when people see you on the road, drunk and stupid and <laughs> belligerent, yeah. you know what I mean? So it just, and, and, you know, frankly, it's just, you can't, it's really, really difficult for a band like us to, to listen to anybody, you know, it wasn't just me, but like, you know, we're, at that point, you know, we had success. So we gave the job of producing the neighborhood to Larry Hirsch, who had engineered um, uh, by Light of the Moon and most of uh, the Wolf record. And we love Larry, fabulous engineer. I just actually listened to something he did last night that the I'm going to be working with the Blind Boys of Alabama, and oh, so nice. I, I actually listened to a record that he mixed. It it, it sounded amazing. I, it it was just like I, I forgot how good that guy was, but. This would be Larry's first um, production, and Larry, wonderful guy, wonderful engineer. He just took the the like he just thought he had to be a different person hmm. to do this. Like he you know, like he kind of lost his, you know, like his thing with us. And you know, so we all and so like for instance, like he thought it would be smart for us to rehearse and play the songs live before we went into the studio. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, on paper, it doesn't sound like a bad idea. Sort but, of a traditional you know, idea, yeah. Yeah, but not up to that point, it was certainly, it was not the way he, we had certainly never done that before. And so basically what ended up happening was that we were kind of tired of the songs by the time we came to record really? them. Really? Uh, yeah, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, like they we'd sort of played them out. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't, you know, they had lost a lot of stuff. And then when we came, came time to record them, you know, Larry was really, really like afraid that you know if anything, you know, like in his mind, if there was anything like slightly flawed about any part of the record, that it would be the end of his career, his his you know now you know non-existent producing career. Right. And it just became this really bizarre, like you know, this endless, endless thing. Like you know, we play these songs for like five months, and then we go in the studio and. We're just working on them and re-recording them over and over again because Larry thinks that something's wrong with them. And then at one point he had another band come in and play. Like he had Booker T and Jim Keltner and other musicians come and play these really? songs. Weird. Yeah. Yeah, you think? <laughs> and then, you know, so we've already, we're already tired of the songs. We're tired of the recording process. We're tired of everything. Mm-hmm. And then it comes time to actually tour the record. Right. And, you know, we, and, and we thought, you know, that there was some vestige of, of La Bamba still in the air, uh-huh. you know, like like somehow or another magically, trend, you know, like like three or four years later now that it was still, we were still, you know, this band that needed two buses and a lighting director and carrying our sound with us and our lights and all this stuff. And none of it was necessary or even useful. Mm-hmm. And we ended up losing a ton of money. The Shit. tour did not do well. Oh, you know, really? we were really, really pissed off that, you know, we let ourselves be talked into this whole bullshit recording process and, you know, playing songs that we fucking... Dead tired of. of. Yeah, yeah. So it was not a good place to be. Yeah. So we come back from this whole thing. We're broke. We don't like the music we just made. You know, we kind of feel like we we wasted this whatever goodwill 
came from the whole Obama thing. We're like high and dry. Like, what the fuck do we do now? Right. With that kind of attitude, we started working on Kiko. Mm -hmm. And so we, so this one, you know, we we were just going to do some demos because at that point we had kind of lost confidence in ourselves, to be honest with you. Really? So we cut some demos at the studio called um, Paul and Mike's, which was um, downtown LA before downtown LA was like the grooviest place on earth. Mm-hmm. And it was like right on what's called the nickel, which is like the literal skid row of, you know, like the, the skid row of skid row. I mean, it's like this really, really horribly depressed, very, very sad place. Like families living in boxes, not, not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. Um, and the studio is right there, like right on the nickel. So, you know, us feeling sorry for ourselves, we walk by people who have real, real live problems. Like right. we're just sad little rock stars, <laughs> you know, walking by <laughs> these guys, you know, living in boxes, you know, you know, people that had lives and, and, you know, had businesses and just, you know, circumstances just push them out on the street. So we kind of got over ourselves a little bit, yeah, <clears> you know, good. seeing, seeing that, you know, graphically in front of us and, uh, but we knew we weren't going to make another record like Neighborhood or By Light of the Moon or anything else. We, we, we had effectively said to ourselves, we're going to stop listening to all these fucking people telling us how we should do shit. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to do, we're going to make a record that makes us happy. And we're not going to listen to anybody. We're not going to take anybody's advice. We're just going to do what we want to do and see what happens. And just see, like, let's just see what happens if we don't, if we stop taking anybody's advice and just make music that makes us happy. Mm-hmm. So we cut... I think about half of Kiko as I would say six of the songs um, and Paul and Mike's with a wonderful engineer named Paul DeGray. Mm-hmm. And uh, we go in and we play them for Lenny Warnaker, who is, you know, like basically our, and our guy, our, you know, he's yeah. our, our dude um, over there. And he loved it. And he thought it was, it was great. Were they fully realized recordings or were they, they were pretty fully realized? Yeah. I, I gotta say, you know, I heard them when we put the Kiko 30th anniversary together and they mm-hmm. were pretty close to, you know, like, Certainly, Mitchell and Chad had a huge, huge, huge effect. But the songs themselves, like Angels with Dirty Faces, Two Janes. They were all there. Uh, Kiko is not, it, it, it had. It wasn't called Kiko. Kiko, that song was, you know, that that was, you know, Mitchell and Chad. And, you know, that was, you know, them doing that. So it wasn't like we had a the, the song that made the record go yet. Mm-hmm. But the ideas were there and the, the, you know, the weird sort of space was there. And, the mm-hmm. you know, the sonics were were you know you could hear where we were going with it did you feel um, like you you were trying to get away from being a bit of a like less of a live band situation yes. and more experimental yes yeah okay. yes definitely all of those things yes we were we, we were we didn't want it to sound like anything we had ever done before we didn't want it to sound like anything anybody had ever done before mm-hmm. and somehow or another in this weird studio in this weird place both in our heads and outside of our heads we started making this you know kind of this sound that that was, you know, starting to make us happy. Now yeah. I'm going to back up. You know, I keep backing up. One thing that happened in the course of the neighborhood that was cool was um, we 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 turned it in, and Lenny said, you know, I think we're like one song shy. So you know, could you do one more? You know, would you mind going in and do one more song? And he re- that's more or less. We had met Mitchell. Mitchell came and sang, or he played keyboards on uh, one time one night. Oh, he did uh, okay. on on uh, by Light of the Moon. Yeah. So we had met him, and he was, you know, we knew that he was well regarded around Slash, but we had never really worked with him. Mm-hmm. And we did. So he ended up producing. He didn't. I don't even know. He got credit, but it, um, we did one song with Mitchell called uh, "Be Still" mm-hmm. on on the neighborhood. And that was yep. the best thing about the neighborhood was okay. that. So we had gotten to know him and and meet him, and 
you know, it was kind of that song in a weird way was the first song on Kiko because that was the first time we had effectively synthesized all of our influences up to that point. Oh, like we, when we would do a, a song, it would have this specific flavor. Like it would sound like a Cajun song. It right. would sound like a Nortenia song. It would sound right. like a blues song. And we would use all the quote unquote tropes of the genre that we were choosing to work in. And I think what made Kiko so unusual <clears throat> and it really started with be still was that was the first time that we said, well, look what happens if we, we mix this Wapango rhythm with, you know, this weird, you know, sound from a country record that we heard and then did this sort of like Bo Diddley percussion part. And so that was like the first real thing where we, where we where we stopped thinking in primary colors and started thinking in, and, you know, let's, let's really throw all these things into a giant pot and see what comes out. Was the process more overdubby as well, rather than like a live band situation? Yes. Okay. Yes. But, but see, but at that point, like the neighborhood was completely overdubbed. I mean, that was kind oh, of yeah. Larry's thing because everything had to be perfect. So, it's, oh, okay. you know, it'd be like, you know, redo this, redo that, redo that. Like, no, it's not good enough. Yeah. You know, just like endless, 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 yeah, that's you know, non, non pro tools, fiddling and fudging and punching yeah. and, you know, trying to get something quote-unquote perfect that was never supposed to be perfect in the first place right we were kind of pissed off like we were pissed off at ourselves we were pissed off at the world mm -hmm. we were pissed off that we had you know taken what you know i think in retrospect with some bad advice and listen you know made some bad choices on our own. i wasn't like you know i'm not blaming anybody but ourselves but we had we had you know a lot of weird shit had gone down like this whole paul simon thing went down you know we <laughs> stole one of our songs it's a yeah. whole another yeah. hour of conversation yeah so, it, you know, like all of it fed into this thing of like, fuck it, we're just going to do what we want. Fuck you. Fuck everybody. Just, you know, I'm, we're not listening to you. You know, we listened to Lenny because we loved him. Yeah. And Lenny never, you know, he'd only had all of his advice had only ever been supportive and good. Like, you know, when there was no reason for us to do the Pistola record coming out of La Bamba, but he totally supported that idea. You know, so he had proven, you know, he he, he had proven to us that he really he was, had our backs. He was an ally. And if, yeah. and if he had a, if he wanted something, we would do it. It wasn't, there was no question. I mean, that's why we did the Paul Simon thing. If, if, if Whatever Lenny asked for, oh, he was the was, one guy. That was his idea? Uh, yeah, it was okay. his idea. That He was the only person that we gave, whose opinion we gave a shit about. Mm -hmm. uh, Mitchell and Chad had just come off of a Pretenders record. And that was uh, evidently, you know, Chrissy was very, uh, she wasn't in good spirits mm. and they had a brutal time. So they, they came out of it. Like we were all kind of like similarly pissed off. Like none of, none of us were particularly happy with anything. <laughs> okay. um, they were in a bad mood. We were in a bad mood. Yeah. Um, but, but we were all mad at the kind of like the, the, the game, you know, it wasn't like right. mad at anybody specifically. We we're just mad at like, you know, this bullshit thing, you know, you know, we'd made this dumb choice and you made this dumb choice. And we were all kind of like all of it fed to this feeling of like, what's the worst thing that could happen if we just listened to our own, you know, voices? Well, if we own like the just made a record that made us all really happy and enthralled and made us feel good when we listened to it, it didn't have anything to do with anything anywhere else in the world that anybody else was doing. Yeah. And that's kind of why that record came to be, because we were all just so, like, we had nothing to lose. We were just like, fuck it. We're just not going to take any shit from anybody, or, you know, we're just going to do, make a record as weird as we want it to be. <laughs> the songs are going to go where they want to go. We're not going to fix anything. We're going to sit there and overdub for, you know, three months like we did with yeah. Larry. We're going to do, and, you know, in a certain respect, one of the reasons why that record sounds the way it does is that coming out of that stupidity, a lot of the stuff that you hear on that record were like first takes when no one really knew how the song went. Mm -hmm. Like we were just kind of like feeling our way in mm -hmm. the dark more or less. Mm -hmm. And you know, that we kind of got, we started to really like that sound of right. like 
guys not really understanding like how the song goes and so the chords would be like wrong or the, right. they come in and somebody <laughs> there's a lot of history to that technique man but yeah, dylan, dylan made know, a career out of it exactly but it's kind of cool you know like somebody you know somebody comes to the bridge of bar early it's kind of like yeah that's that, you know just go with it honor it as your hidden intention basically so so because you had the support from lenny did you guys have kind of carte blanche as far as like a budget went to like could you spend tons of time in the studio or was it not well really... we had enough i don't think you know because we had done like the the demo process was was you know that cost like almost nothing mm-hmm. so we were like halfway done really okay. i mean we ended up using all that stuff on on kick like all the record itself was i think almost maybe one song wasn't done wasn't based on the stuff we had done oh, on the okay. demo, like as the demo so yeah, yeah. we were way ahead of the game and it wasn't like we were going to spend a long time when we spent i think from beginning to end like once we got with mitchell it was like five weeks you know again i'll just mention that you know t-bone was very expensive he was expensive himself and he had a lot of you know we had to pay for a lot of stuff with him like he, he had a, even though he lived in la we had to pay for a fucking hotel room don't ask me why really um <laughs> so it, like that you know, once all that stuff went away, it was it wasn't like you know, it really wasn't a very expensive at all okay. record to make. So arrangement wise on that record, like some of those great lines that are like weird um, uh, duets between like the Barry Sax and like some weird fucked up keyboard sound, was that all being experimented on as well, or were, like whose yeah, ideas were yeah. those in general? And here's the weird part: is like I, you know, I, a lot of, because it was kind of very dreamlike i don't really even remember like what's what was mine and what was you know like i don't you know right. I, I know that mitchell orchestrated i mean david came up with the, the kiko line uh-huh. and it was mitchell's uh it was his the uh, chamberlain that kind of made it that okay. made that sound yeah but in terms of like the riffs and the other stuff it was just sort of like it was really all hands on deck you know it wasn't uh-huh. you know we we're all just in this super that's cool. It Incredibly started, creative space. Yeah. And it was just like an idea would pop up or a sound would happen. And, yeah. you know, I have to say, you know, obviously Chad is a genius. So, yeah, yeah a lot of it would, would be like, you know, we, you know, we would do something in the room and come in and Chad would, by the time we walked through the corridor, Chad would have like manipulated. So it sounded like so was something he, was completely he kind of, different than what we intended. And it, it was just awesome. So he was like distorting and reamping things in real time. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Cool. The, everything that was that you heard on the record was happening more or less effectively. It wasn't like stuff that was treated after the fact. A lot of it was you know, like we were going for textures yeah. from the word go. And that, and you know, a lot of that actually started in at Paul and Mike's. I mean, that was kind of where we went <clears throat> when we started the demo process was, you know, started messing with, you know, pedals on everything, you uh-huh. know, pedals on drums, pedals on vocals, pedals right. on, on saxes, you know, like that's kind of where we started. And then it like went to by you know, a factor of a million once, you know, we got with Chad and Mitchell right. and, yeah you know we all liked it and then like every day became like how could we out 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 weird yesterday you know, like <laughs> you know what i mean like what yeah. so we'd all like you know spend the an hour before the session going to pawn shops trying to find you know weird pedals or weird keyboards or you know some some bizarre thing that we would then you, you know figure out a, like a tube you know i, I passed by this construction site and I, I grabbed this uh this air conditioning duct you know what do you think like oh you know let's hit it let's turn it into a drum oh, i know let's <laughs> stick a mic in it and, and and you know put it up against the kick drum like yeah you know it, it was just like the right moment it was uh-huh. you know like almost everything stuck i don't remember like like you know after the other like the, the two records prior where we you know we have to start over again and yeah, ideas yeah. would just kind of go into a ditch and you, you know throw them away and start over again i don't remember ever ever throwing away anything cool from kiko i mean there were like when we did the the 30th 
anniversary, there were no outtakes. Right. It was just all there. Really like it was like no, it was like nothing. The only thing that were you know there was the pre Mitchell and Chad stuff and the yeah. you know then their stuff, but it was you know it wasn't like wow that's really cool how they really and like wow it's it's pretty close to what it ended up being you know it just sounded way more interesting, but it wasn't like the ideas were dramatically different. You mentioned that that and you I were think, there for five weeks. In that time, would would you have all been basically set up as a band so you could go in and like play together? Or was it kind of like at by the time you were working with Mitchell and Chad, were you just experimenting and doing it wasn't, stuff? I don't think, honestly, there was not a lot of us playing like five in a room or you know uh-huh. six with Pete. You know, we had Pete Thomas. A lot of it would be like Dave and Pete would start it mm-hmm. or Mitchell might play along with something just to sort of create a vibe mm-hmm. in my memory. There wasn't a whole lot of the five of us playing together okay. on that, on either that one or uh, you know, Colossal Head was a little bit more five of us playing together. But um, it was just the nature of how the ideas were, were coming. You know, like the ideas yeah. would just be like, there'd just be like this real sketchy, like it'd just be a chord progression or just like a, you know, something that was just kind of like in, in Dave's head mostly, you know, like, or something David Mitchell came up with and they start playing it and then Pete would come up with something and then uh-huh. it would turn into a thing. And then, you know, Louis would take it away and, and do the lyrics and, yeah. you know, come back and make it happen later. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a lot of us, all five of us in, in the room together. And was everyone on the same page? Like, was there, was it all like everything was sort of ticking at that point or was there any yeah, resistance I would say to the some pretty of the much, stuff? you know, it was a little, yeah, I, you know, I mean, understandable weirdness, resistance to some of the weird stuff, but nobody said no. I mean, nobody, everybody was like, well, that's kind of different, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, but nobody, nobody was being, you know, dickish about it or right. like, you know, that's, that's too strange. I mean, it was just, it was obvious that there was something interesting happening, yeah. you know, and it wasn't, and it wasn't really until the very end of it, we sat down and we listened to the whole thing because we would tend to work on like one song and kind of see it through mm-hmm. and then start another one and start another one. And we, you know, we very, I, I just remember, and Louis tells a story of like all of us sitting down and listening to all the mixes, like finally on one day and, mm-hmm. and nobody said a word. Like we all just kind of got up and wandered out of the studio. And nobody said anything mm-hmm. like nobody, you know, like we didn't even quite understand what it was we had done ourselves. Like, yeah, I bet. Like, what. What just happened? Were, did you? I mean, we knew we liked it, but but it was like none of us were, were you like, unsure wow. about what the what people would think of it, just because it was such a departure. Very, yeah, yeah, very, yeah. No, we weren't. We knew it was it was going to you know change the perception of the band. You know, yeah. we knew that we'd probably lose some of the the fans that liked the you know the, the older stuff. Yeah. stuff you yeah. know, but uh, whatever. You know, we weren't going back. You know, we yeah. we we had decided that whatever was going to happen was going to happen that way, and you know, if we just literally shot ourselves in the foot. Well, we were going to stand behind it because we <laughs> felt better about that than we had felt about, you know, anything that had happened, right. you know, certainly than anything that happened during the neighborhood. So when you handed that record in, what was the label's reaction to it? They, you know, Lenny loved it. Oh, cool. And I think it was, um, you know, I think it was like we were, the timing was right. There yeah. was like people were ready to hear something a little bit different. Yeah. And certainly like, you know, coming from everything that we come through that it was, you know, everybody sort of perceived it as a pretty giant leap forward. And I, I just, you know, that was still, you know, the glory days of Warner Brothers, but they had some really, really good people. And and Colossal Head, I mean, it, it feels less epic to me, but 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 still such a great record and, and such memorable performances and stuff. But. In a weird way, that one, that one, <coughs> I have to say, that one might be my favorite yeah. record of all. Yeah, because I, it, I, I love it, man. That one, that one, 
the story on that was so we had just prior to starting it we had done uh, Desperado with uh, Robert Rodriguez like his movie okay and with Rodriguez he you know, like so when you see a movie and somebody scored a movie you know movies say like it's an hour and a half long a movie with a lot a lot a lot of score might be 50 minutes of that 90 right if you think about it, like like when you actually hear music and when the music stops and people are talking or there's something that happens that, you know, the story's advancing, you know, that's a lot. 50 minutes for a movie is a lot. Yeah. 60 would be a lot, a lot. Right. Robert wanted 90 It was end, end to end, end to end music. He, his music, his, his <laughs> movies are literally nonstop. And he would want to, beforehand because he liked to shoot to it he liked to actually listen to okay. cues as he's because he does you know i think he, i think uh pt anderson does that too i think yeah yeah but he was like he was doing everything he was shooting he was editing he uh-huh. was you know he was literally the, the one-man shop right but he had sucked every idea any little tiny big any any anything that resembled a musical thought was sucked out of us to to populate desperado okay and that you know, so that ended on Friday, and then you know Monday we were supposed to start Colossal Head. Okay. Like, so we were just like we were Fried. exhausted. Yeah. I know I was exhausted, and we were out of material. We didn't have a single fucking really? you know, thread of of anything to to start this record with. So I remember we walk in the studio and we're just like, oh boy, what you now what? Yeah. And Dave, to his great credit, goes, well. What would Jimmy Reed do? <laughs> and it was sort of like we're all sitting there, we're like he would yeah, drink. Okay, yeah. What would Jimmy Reed do? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Like, well, what how? And that's really how it started. Like, okay, well, he'd probably write like a real simple riff. And what was the first thing that came out? Probably Colossal Head. Mm-hmm. You know that song? Yeah. Little by little, we managed to you know put a whole record together. Wow. Um, based around that idea, so we you know even though we were on empty. Um, we still pulled it off and it wasn't dreamlike. It was very purposeful. And, right. and we had to, we had to like literally dig deep in our brains. Like, how are we going to, how are we going to pull this off? Like, how yeah. are we going to actually use this time and make a record? So that's kind of what, how that, how it came to be. It's definitely more of like a live sounding record, although I'm sure it's not yeah. a live thing, but it, it well, feels it was, more that like one, a... That one actually was live or there was a lot of us playing all together on that record because okay. that was like, you know, we would come up with a riff or a thing or an idea and, and then have to, uh, you know, have to you know, execute it. So it wasn't right. like it was, you know, even though it sounds similar to Kiko, it was done, I think, in a, in a much different way in that regard. Uh, just wondering if you could maybe tell me what's coming up for you, like either production wise or with the band or what what's next for you. I'm finishing a bunch of stuff. I, I just finished uh, a record with a, an artist named uh, Peter Himmelman, who's uh-huh. kind of been around for a while. Yeah. So that one's done. I did a record that just finished with a band called Sweet Spirit from Austin that are amazing. Okay. Um, and I'm starting... So I've actually done this really interesting thing. I'm doing a record with an, a poetess from Calgary named Sherry D. Wilson, mm-hmm. who does sort of like, I don't know, it's hard to describe, kind of like somewhere between The Last Poets and Word Jazz, I guess, if you're okay. familiar with the, the Ken Nordeen stuff, where yeah. it's like she's reciting poetry over, effectively, you know, these grooves that kind of go on for a while. Yeah. So that's been really interesting. I'm not, we're not quite done with that one yet, but that's... I'm working on that one uh, next week mm-hmm. here. She's kind of, she's coming to Portland to, to finish it. Okay. Do you have a studio there, or or you just? Uh, I don't know. It's uh, Portland's kind of interesting. There's a lot of 
there's really, really good studios here, mm-hmm. and they're really, really cheap. So oh, it doesn't really perfect. make sense for me to own or maintain or you know invest in, I don't gear. Invest in yeah. gear and you know all the stuff that I would have to do if yeah. if it wasn't here. So um, and it's a fun city to work in. There's really, really, really great players all yeah. around town, and so yeah, so that that's happening. And then uh, at some point. Early next year, I'm going to be doing this uh, Blind Boys of Alabama record, which should be interesting. So you're producing their. I'm going to be doing. I'm going to. I think how it's going to work is um, Don was is involved, mm-hmm. but he's not going to be involved in the prep part. Okay. I think what's going to happen is that that I'll be doing the the prep and the the song collecting and the teaching and the other stuff, and then whenever it comes time to actually make the record, you know, we'll be doing it together. So I. Guess we're co-producing. I, okay. I, we haven't really worked out the yeah, yeah. the thing, but he's he's a fan, and I have no issue with it. I think it should yeah, be fun. Man, that'd so be awesome. What about Los Lobos? Is there any recording on the horizon? Um, honestly, I don't think so. I mean, we're not talking about it, uh-huh. and we're not. It's gonna be. I don't know. We'll see. I I I don't I don't know the answer to that. You know, uh-huh. I'm not sure when the next Lobos thing is gonna be. It's yeah. The last record was, uh, I will say in all honesty, not a lot of fun to make. Really? I still have the, you know, like kind of like childbirth, you know, like don't want to go right back into it. Right. Yeah, you need a little <laughs> when, distance maybe. When, when, when the, the pain is fresh. So yeah, we'll see how I feel in a, in, a, in a year or so. But, you know, right now we don't have a record label. There's no one asking, you know, no one waiting for yeah. us to start one. So I don't know. It's we're that weird place. It's like you know, do we need another record? I mean, I ask that question a lot. I mean, does, does anybody care if we do one? I mean, how much does it matter? You know, it's uh, it's weird. I I don't know. Um, I think a lot of people are asking that these days. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm sure they are. It's, yeah. You know, a band in our where we're at, like our our you know where we're at in in the world. It's like you know, do our fans care? I mean, I, I'm sure they'd love one. And I think the answer to that is definitely. But but yeah, you have to feel inspired for sure, and it can't just be a thing that you do just for the sake of it. Um, right. Yeah. Exactly. The real, the real story there is it's, I mean, it is, I mean, it's definitely fertile, but it's not, it doesn't come easily to anybody, especially Dave, you know, he just doesn't, I know he doesn't enjoy it. Um, it takes a long time for songs to come out. You know, a lot of, you know, we do it well, but a lot of ideas get, you know, recycled and stuff that yeah. didn't make prior cuts, you know, comes up again. So it's not, right. you know, it's just, uh, We've been around for a long time. We made yeah, a lot yeah. of records, you know. I guess yeah. you know we, we have the right to feel this way and the right to do it this way. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, man, and talking to me about this stuff. It's great to hear your your side of things and and um, such a great history and you know going way back to those days in L.A. and and Philly and stuff. So th- thank you for doing that. My pleasure. Well, that was a lot of fun speaking with Steve Berlin. I hope you enjoyed that conversation, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next week. So please. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and um, join me next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.